Hello, Samantha. It's nice to meet you. Hi. It's nice to meet you, too. Um, Before we start, and I say this to everybody, if at any point you feel like you want to restate something, you don't love the way you said it, that's the joy of the podcast. Please feel free to just take it again. We want you to feel like you're sounding your best. I'm going to say the most outrageous shit and then be like, leave it in. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Wow. Love to hear it. No one has ever taken that as a challenge before. This is In Conversation from Apple News. I'm Shamita Basu. Today, essayist Samantha Irby on how to like what you like and not really care what others think. I read a lot for work. Mostly news, some books, lots of heavy topics. You know, politics, state of the world stuff. But recently, I picked up a book of essays that made me laugh out loud so hard I had tears streaming down my face. And I realized it's been so long since I nourished myself with a book that was purely fun. The book is called Quietly Hostile. It's a new collection of essays by humor writer Samantha Irby. Really just a bunch of observations and musings from her everyday life, which might look a lot like yours, except somehow way funnier the way she tells it. She's got a growing fan base and credits on several TV shows, too. She wrote my favorite episode of the TV show Shrill, which was adapted from Lindy West's book. And she's part of the writer's room on the Sex and the City reboot called And Just Like That. I recently sat down with Sam Irby to talk about her process of writing during the pandemic, about Sex and the City, of course, and about how important it is to just do things you enjoy even if they seem frivolous or stupid. And because she does so many different things, I started by asking her how she describes herself. To be funny and self-effacing, I would say something like joke donkey. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) (laughs) professional idiot, sad clown, but a writer with a question mark. Is, wow, is that's maybe a big the question most... mark for someone whose books have been on the best-selling list consistently. Here's the thing, though. I, I just, and this will keep me humble, I guess, forever. I will always just think of them as, like, printed-out blogs, right? Because I don't <laughs> uh-huh. have, like... I don't have, like, a setup. You know how there are writers who are like, this is my desk, this is where I work, I get up and I do this. And, like, that to me feels like a real writer. And what I do, which is panic in the middle of the night as the deadline is looming, um, that doesn't feel like (laughs) it should be called writing. (laughs) I mean, it is. But, like, what I do, you know, making poop jokes uh, with trauma in between <laughs> doesn't feel, I don't know, but writer. My title should be talker because look at how long it took me to explain <laughs> <laughs> why, why I'm not a writer. But listen, I think what you're describing is a kind of underrated part of the creative process Mm -hmm. for a lot of creators, which is um, 
sometimes it really is that you're just up against the deadline yeah. and you're you're waiting till the last minute or you're just every uh, time blurting it all out and blobbing it on the page right every single time I mean there there have been essays where I've outlined or I've taken notes or I've texted myself things to remember but usually it's just a sprint to the day my editor says you will default if you don't turn the book in by this day. (laughs) And I know she doesn't even mean that, but it helps to hear it. It takes the the foot on my neck to get me to really sit down and write. Okay, for instance, for example, you are maybe the first person I'm telling this to. Mm -hmm. I was talking to my editor about the next book idea, it's going to be a little different. And she said, okay, I expect a full manuscript in 11 months. And I was like, oh, great. I'm going to start working on it in 10 months, maybe (laughs) nine months. I could just hear... Why did you tell me that? I could just hear her balloon deflating over the phone. She was just like... (sighs) So... (laughs) That's really fun. So that is really how you work. You like to let it happen organically and at the last minute. Yes. I don't have in... I mean, in life, and this is probably a bad trait, but I don't have a sense of urgency about much, right? I think I maybe learned too early that, like, if you don't die at the end, it's fine, right? I know no one's going to kill me for turning this in late, so I don't worry worry about it. Yeah, everything below death is low stakes. Yes! (laughs) Yeah, and even then... If it's peaceful, I'll take it. But I don't know what it is. I just am not a self-motivator, which I wish I was. But, you know, I'm 43. It is what it is, I think, at this point. I'm never going (laughs) to turn over a new leaf. (laughs) So tell me, is the process different for you? Because this this latest book is a book of essays, as many of your books have been. But I know you've you've worked on so many different kinds of projects, too. You've written for TV before. Mm -hmm. Is your process different depending on what it is you're writing? Yes. Well, a little bit. So I I have a newsletter that I've dropped the ball on. Sorry to any people who subscribe and haven't heard from me in a minute. And what I do there, I'll either write about things I'm watching or reading or I recap the television show Judge Mathis. <laughs> the two categories of things you can write, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's it. You know, one of my early <laughs> newsletters, <laughs> I got a response. This was when I was still allowing responses in the early days. I got a response from this woman who was like, I was expecting a quality essay. And I was like, sister. I don't even write those to be published. You thought you were going to get that for free <laughs> on the internet? No, you're going to get what you get. So so with that, I just kind of like riff. Um, with the Judge Mathis recaps, it's just a template I follow. I tried to throw some jokes in. I mean, they're all funny and spectacular, but <laughs> those are like more formulaic. And then with my book stuff... I just, 
I get an idea that feels exciting to me and feels like I can say a lot of words about it. And then I always know where the end is. I think that's the difference between my book writing and my other writing is I write to an ending. Mm. I know where it's going to go. If I Mm -hmm. don't know where it's going to go, I don't write it. All of the things that I sort of have, you know, growing mold in my draft folder, it's all stuff that I was like, I don't know how to land this plane. And like, this is a very good idea but I don't know where to take it, Mm, or it's mm -hmm. not substantive. Like, this should be a long tweet, not an essay. (laughs) (laughs) So those things I don't do, but pretty much everything else, I just write what I'm feeling like. I do a once-over read, and that's it. But with the book stuff, you know, you have to read it so many times. Mm, You get nauseous mm. (laughs) thinking about it, and it gets edited by other people. I mean— Maybe that's the main difference is, like, both with books and TV, other people's input matters, and you have to consider it. And I don't mind that at all. I am perfectly happy to let the plumber fix the sink, you know? Like, I'm not an editor. If you, as an editor, tell me that this sucks, then... Let's take it out. But with my stuff, I do not kill any of my darlings, right? Mm -hmm. You'll see Mm -hmm. my newsletter is too long all the time. I take too many detours, but that's because it's the one place (laughs) where no one else is going to tell me what to do. Yeah, it's the playground. When left to my own devices, it's a horror show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so let's talk about the the latest book. Let's talk about Quietly Hostile, Mm -hmm. because... You wrote about, I mean, you were working on it during the pandemic, and the very first essay in the opener, we we hear more about your pandemic experience, the early pandemic experience. How was writing this collection of essays different from some of your past books? Well, I uh, have a psychiatrist this time. And I'm on a lot of Zoloft. The pandemic Mm, really, mm -hmm. like, broke my brain. Or, no, let's not put it all on the pandemic. I think it exacerbated some problems that I wasn't dealing with. Mm. I just, I viewed being home, like, stuck at home, not as a positive, but I leaned into it, right? I was like, I don't want to go outside. I hate doing things. This is perfect for me. And so I didn't Mm -hmm. leave the house for a year minimum. I mean, maybe I got a little fresh air, but I certainly didn't see anyone or go any place. And I think turning inward for as long as I did was not great. And I got a psychiatrist who diagnosed me with OCD, which... Mm explained so many things about my habits and personality. And so writing this with, I didn't write about the OCD because, frankly, I don't know where it ends mm, <laughs> yet. I'm still at the very beginning yeah, um, yeah. of figuring it out and doing the therapy to deal with it. But I think this time writing the book, I was coming out of a really 
torturous brain place, right? Like feeling all of those pandemic feelings plus the new psychiatrist revelations Mm. and all that stuff. I felt like both a very different person. And I mean, I'm always me, right? I'm always the 15-year-old writing from the most emotional place. But this had an extra layer of new sadness or despair or discomfort with what was happening in my head. Because I had been used to anxiety and depression, right? Those are my best friends. But the OCD trying to deal with that while also figuring out what to write was an extra layer through which to process all of this stuff. Wow. That is so interesting to hear about after reading your book mm-hmm. and sort of thinking back on your essays in it, because, I mean, l- listen, this is a this is a humorous book. This is <laughs> yes. a very, very yeah. funny book, I should just say. I mean, Thank you. I laughed out loud so many times <laughs> while reading it. Like, I laughed until I cried many times while reading it. And yet at the same time, there's there's definitely more of a of a somberness to this book mm-hmm. than some of your past essays. Yeah. Um, I hear a lot of introspection in it. And there's something to be said, as, as you're pointing out about, you know, my work is based on my observations. And now I know something entirely different about the origins of my observations. Mm-hmm. A- and I wasn't able to write about the OCD so did you try? I no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. The one thing I was going to do, which I will do in a future book, uh, with OCD, one of the best treatments is exposure therapy. Mm. But the things that I fear are situations that are hard to recreate. For instance, I'm hypervigilant. And one of the things I'm always afraid of is that someone's going to walk up and hit me. You can't really recreate exposure therapy. Mm. I guess I could pay someone to walk up and punch me in the face, but (laughs) that's not practical. So instead, my doctor has me write out situations. She's like, think of the worst thing that could happen and write a super detailed account of someone hitting you in a public place or someone accosting you in a grocery store. So I write it, really detailed, like truly the worst things I can imagine. And then I have to read it multiple times a day, record it, listen to myself, and just Listen to it over and over again until it's defanged, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I have not reached the point yet where these things, where the reading of them, I can laugh, you know, but I'm getting there. Mm, (laughs) mm. I'm I'm getting there. So one day I will put all of those scenarios in a book so people can read the ways I have been torturing myself over the last year. Oh, wow. In list form, as you often do. Yes. Yeah. You know I love a list. Wow. Um, Wait, so are you writing these in a humorous way? I mean, yes, because... That's your voice. I can't write... Even my serious things have, you know, goofy things in them. Um, So I write them in a humorous way, but they are scary. To me, to me. But the thing about this book was 
writing from this new perspective without explaining it to the audience also feels so weird because I'm so Hmm. open all the time. So it just, it was very weird putting, it feels almost like cheating if I have a big thing going on and I don't put it in a book, right? I feel like I'm denying, (laughs) I'm denying the audience something, but it's just until I work it out. Yeah. Till I know what I want to say about it, you know, Keep your eyes peeled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, ha- we'll have the OCD journey eventually. So the title of your book is Quietly Hostile. And as I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, you don't seem like a particularly seething person. So I'm interested to hear how you arrived at this description for yourself. Well... Okay. You know how people will read an article and write a letter to the newspaper or someone will write a letter after they listen to this podcast and tell you that my grammar is terrible? I'm never moved to do things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In life, though, in my everyday existence, I do always (laughs) feel Have you seen the movie Falling Down with Michael Douglas? No, I haven't, actually. Okay, first of all, watch it. (laughs) But it's about this dude, this regular dude, who just loses it. He just loses it because life is absurd. And, like, McDonald's stops serving breakfast at 1030. You know, he he loses his mind because of normal things. (laughs) And... A lot of days I feel like that. Yeah, yeah. I am I am so deeply Midwestern that I will never be shouting in the street. I will never confront anyone. I will sit in my car and grip the steering wheel and feel like I'm about to explode. But I do get so mad. It's it's just inside. And it's always about things that don't matter that much. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why I keep it quiet. Because if I complained about all the things I want to complain about, I would have no friends. No one would talk to me ever if they could hear my interior monologue they'd be like oh oh mm -mm, her no she needs to be living like in the haunted house at the end of the block that kids don't go (laughs) go near (laughs) but i do keep it inside which i think is one of my good qualities is that i can put a cap on and it's always something like man, I wish this huge truck wasn't following me so closely. It's never, it's never anything real. It's just... Yeah, it's the little things. (laughs) (laughs) You keep just simmering below the surface. Oh, they're always there. They are always, they never go away. I wake up and I'm like, am I still mad about, yeah, she did park too close to me. (laughs) (laughs) A quiet grudge keeper. Yes. Hey, it's good to know what you are and just be able to say it. Yeah, I, I can't I can't deny yeah. it. Yeah. To that point, one of my favorite chapters in the whole book is the I like it essay. 
Thank you. You call this your superpower? I want to ask you to describe it. Can you describe this this I like it move yes. and how you deploy it? Um, people listening, you probably know a snob or two or 12, the kind of person who, before they even look at the back of the book you're reading, tells you that that book is dumb. I mean, it's probably one of my books, so they're not wrong, but it's still rude. (laughs) Those people want to shame you and make you feel bad and make you apologize for liking what you like. And I've stopped doing that. And instead, when someone criticizes something I like, and I feel like it's a bad faith criticism, especially, Mm. my response is just to go, I like it. (laughs) (laughs) And then just let it hang. You had the stillest face, too. Just just resolute. That's, That's how I do it. I like it. I like it. What do they do? What's the response? I mean, die inside, usually. (laughs) But most people, they never want to debate. Which? Because how do you debate when someone just says, I like it? (laughs) That's it. That silence that follows is beautiful. It takes their knees right out from under them. Like, no matter what Mm -hmm, I am mm -hmm. feeling inside or how uncharitable I am feeling toward my fellow man, I keep it inside. And I don't care what anybody pays attention to. That's another weird thing. Maybe this is, I I should have expanded it. I'll do I like it part two in the next book. Where it's like, (laughs) why do you even care what someone else is looking at? Yeah, sure. I don't care. If you're not forcing it on me, and I don't even need to be forced. If you're like, hey, let's watch this stupid thing I like, I'll be like, okay, yeah, let's watch it. But even caring about what other people are paying attention to is so nuts to me, let alone having an opinion on it or a fake opinion Come on. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, I have to admit, you know, when I read this essay, I can think of plenty of <laughs> I like it things mm-hmm. that I have quietly kept to myself. And I don't know. I feel like reading this essay actually it made me want to it made me want to be braver. It gave me like Do a Do you want to say one now? Okay, I'll say one now. This is, like, not that controversial. That's the other thing, right? Like, most of the examples I came up with are, these are not a big deal, right? Why does it matter? But it's, like, it's social shame or something, right? It's social shame, yes. You're not reading, like, Mein Kampf or whatever. You're reading a a book you got at Walgreens. Exactly. You don't have to Very much not a big deal. It's just my thing. (laughs) If it's your ick, that's fine. Yes. Um, For me, this is what I was thinking about was, I mean, okay, so there's, like, all this health food, like mm-hmm. your body is a temple, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> truthfully, though, if you ask me at the end of the day what peanut butter I want, I want it to be a peanut butter with so many ingredients that I can't pronounce <laughs> in it because they just taste better to me. I don't know what to tell you. You are correct. The peanut butters that are like just peanuts, <laughs> proud to say, I've Blah. tried them and I don't like them. The layer of oil alone is reason not to buy those. You want your peanut butter smooth or crunchy, but a consistently crunchy texture. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite, so my wife and I are very different. And one of our big differences is that I like things from the store. 
mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, we're having cake? Get a cake from the store. And she's like, oh, no, I'm baking a cake. And I'm like... <laughs> you know the store has them, right? <laughs> can- <laughs> yes! Right. <laughs> Y'all can eat that low sugar whatever cake. I'm going to get this one from the store that, like, tastes good and could survive a nuclear bomb. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but yeah, I'm with you. The food snobs, some of the worst kind of snobs. People who are like, oh, McDonald's. I feel like we're living through this time where it's like really sinful to hold some of these, you know, opposing opinions. And um, right. I, I just like the idea of arresting it and like stopping it in its tracks with an I like it. Yes. I mean, one of the things about the pandemic. It's like life is so hard and we live through so much. My personal choices that affect me only cannot be something I'm feeling bad about. You know what I mean? Yeah. If yeah, I totally. want to get a jar of Skippy and eat it off a spoon, that's okay. That's what I'm going to do. You're going to enjoy it. <laughs> yes. yes. It's not hurting anybody. I feel like you have this really insightful way of reflecting back, at least on yourself, Mm -hmm. through different eras in your life. Uh, You write a lot about who you were at 19 and the job you had at the bakery. And you write about your 20s and what your sex life was like and relationships and dating and It's really nice to read someone who is so willing to dig into themselves in every era. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I I know that in this book, at least you write about how you were working on a TV show based on your life for many (laughs) years. And that show ultimately did not get picked up. But what a difficult experience it was to really like write about yourself through those through those decades, because your character, as I understand it, was sort of a, a mix together of all these you yes. different decades. Yeah, it was like elements of current me, the writer, but like not with a wife and stuff because they wanted yeah. TV Sam to be single. Um, but also working at the bakery where I worked when I was, it was like my first real jobby job. And then some of the dirt baggishness of my 20s <laughs> mixed in there. I never want to make a show about myself ever again. It is surreal. Mm -hmm. It's surreal to approach your life from the aspect, and because I don't do this in my writing, I don't think, what am I doing or how do I package this so it's entertaining for people? I just think, oh, we went to the Cheesecake Factory on the grand opening. I'm going to write about that. (laughs) Or, you know, (laughs) I like to think about whales in the middle of the night. I'm going to write about that. But with TV, you have to accomplish so much, especially in a pilot. Who is this? Why do we care? What does she want? Where is she going? Who are her friends? And then you have to figure out how to make that entertaining in 22 minutes. People who do it, incredible. About themselves, incredible. It's easy for me to do it for fictional characters, 
But turning that on myself and thinking, how do I package my life so that it looks good in this episode and is funny and like fits Comedy Central's format? You know, all the things you have to consider. Yeah. Doing that about yourself, I'm done. I don't think no one should do it. I'm never (laughs) doing it. (laughs) Just not for you. No. And then thinking about when I started, so we started like six or seven years ago developing Meaty, my first book for TV. The things I know about the way criticism and social media work now. It was a blessing that the show didn't get made because I cannot imagine, first of all, I can't imagine anyone watching it. But if they do, having someone critique my actual self as portrayed in a television show might actually put me in a grave. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's just not enough separation, you're saying, between criticism of the real you and criticism of the show. Right, right. It's interesting to hear how much you struggled with the content that was based on your real life. Yeah. And, I mean, I know that you wrote on Shrill, which was excellent and I loved. Oh. I loved the pool episode. Oh, really, thank really you. brilliant. I'm so proud of that. Uh, you should be. You should be. It was really incredible and memorable and, and thoughtful and kept me thinking after I'd watched it. <sighs> and, of course, you've worked on the Sex and the City reboot, yeah. which, as you describe it, is like so far removed from your lived experience, from your aspirational experience, it sounds like, too. Yes. And yet you're enjoying working on the show because you've so enjoyed Sex and the City. Yes. And it's the people I work with. It is straight up the best. All we do is scream laugh at each other all day (laughs) over Zoom while thinking up these little stories. But it was the reaction, or at least the public reaction, to And Just Like That was a big reason that I was like, okay, putting the tombstone on (laughs) my ever trying to develop myself for TV because seeing people like, passionately, like some lady called me a murderer because Mr. Big died in the first episode. She tagged me on Instagram and called me a murderer. And I laughed, but that's crazy as hell. And I cannot subject myself, my personal tender baby self that I'm putting on the screen, I could not subject her or the actor playing her to that kind of, you know, it's fun to talk about shows till it's a show you worked on. And then it's like, oh, people are so mean. (laughs) So now. Mm. Can I confess something to you? This might make you faint. Yes. I have watched less than two collective minutes of any Sex in the City, like old Sex in the City. I have not watched Sex in the City. For real? Yeah, for real. And, and not like out of like a stance or anything. I just never watched it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to roast I, you like, because... What do I do? What do I do now? <laughs> well, first, let me admit to you that I've never watched a single episode of The Sopranos or Breaking Bad Sometimes you just miss the big shit. Sometimes you miss the big cultural moment. Sometimes you miss them. Where should you start? Well, that is such a first of all, that is a really generous and compassionate response. So thank you for that. <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> You're welcome. I get it. I oh okay. I think you could. Maybe this is blasphemous. Mm, no, you can't. I was gonna say you could skip the first season, <laughs> but you can't. You could. Mm, I'm sorry. You have to watch the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I have no better advice for you than watch every single minute of it that's ever been made. Okay, you need a text buddy to watch it with you or someone to watch yes. it with you. When catching up on old things, I feel less gross and weird if I'm talking to someone else about it. I don't feel like a loser <laughs> who missed the boat. I'm like, this is the two of us having a, we're having a thing. <laughs> This is socializing. Yes. I get social points for this. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's, that's what I'm going to do. You know, you could text me if you need to and just be like, <laughs> I'm on episode one and I'll start right there and watch it with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Basically, reading your essay convinced me that I have just through osmosis learned so much about sex in the city over the years. I was not lost in your mm -hmm. essay about it, about all the alternative timelines that, and suggestions oh, for episodes. That makes me so happy. I pretty much knew what was going on, which made me think, like, have I have I just somehow absorbed everything I need to know about it? <laughs> I mean, it's possible. But you know what? One thing that would make it worth watching is, I think I wrote this in the book, that the little backlash we got to it was so weird because people were acting as though we'd ruined, you know, Downton Abbey, right? By <laughs> by putting weird stuff in it. The original Sex in the City is so funny and dumb. The dumbest things happen all the time. I mean, there is a <laughs> fart-based episode that is incredible. <laughs> Are you responsible for that one? No, that's in the original series. Oh, in the original you're yes. talking about. Well, see, yeah. there you go. I uh, tried to get some poop in here, but couldn't do it. Uh, close. Didn't, didn't make it. No. Didn't make it. Uh-uh. <laughs> it finds a home in your book always. Yes. Yes, I'm there to scoop that poop right up and put it in a book. <laughs> <laughs> You've said many times before that what you really want is for your books to be read in the bathroom. Yes. You want them to be this fun and frivolous thing that you read yes. while you're sitting on the toilet. Yes. And I feel like this connects back to that I like it attitude because sometimes <laughs> there is a lot of judgment around frivolous things. There's judgment around the frivolous TV or the frivolous books. And, yeah. you know, there's this attitude of if it's not productive why do it? Yeah, when did we get like that? And by we, I mean people at large, because I love frivolity. Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> well, I was wondering if you could make the case. Like, can you make the case for why everybody should do more frivolous things that just make them happy? Oh, yes. Okay. If you have a job, you probably hate that job even a little bit. That's why you should watch whatever thing you want to watch on TV. Your car, probably not the car you want. Your house, not so great. There's a hole in the deck. Chipmunks are chewing through your retaining wall. <laughs> Life is 
terrible. And if you're old enough to not have to do things for school assignments, then you should do whatever you want that makes you happy. Anything that distracts you from how terrible life is. You're probably sick. Your joints hurt. Your back's jacked up. Like, whatever it is, life sucks. And so you should do what you want when it comes to entertaining yourself and making yourself happy. That's it. Samantha Irby, (laughs) I can't think of a better ending. It has been so much fun chatting with you. You too. I hope you have an incredible day. I am about to go get back in bed. (laughs) (laughs) Samantha Irby is a writer with no question mark at the end. Her latest collection of essays, Quietly Hostile, is out now on Apple Books. We'll include a link for you on our show notes page. Oh, that was so fun.